I kept drinking and from my earliest, including my first experience drinking, what I got out of it was exactly what you read about. You know, the conviviality, the belonging, the sense of excitement, I'm now popular, I'm not self-conscious. It got me out of uh, myself and into a feeling of comfort that I don't think I had experienced before in my life. And that is the voice of Nicole L. Welcome to Episode 3 of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. Again, my name is Mike S. What I wanted to talk to today was about my first initial experiences with drinking and drugging. Um, I, I had my first sort of wow moment with drugs. I remember I was 14. I had a dental procedure done. I'd messed up teeth when I was young and I had a few teeth extracted uh, and they had to drill into my gums. It was like brutal. And I remember being at home afterwards. I remember the Novocaine had basically worn off and I am waiting for my mom to you know, filled this script from CVS for painkillers. And I'm just like climbing the walls in pain. I remember that. She finally comes home. I take these two 10 milligram yellow Percocets, having never taken them before. And within 15 minutes, the pain is gone. But more than that, I'm just, I'm trying to sum up the feeling. The feeling is, it's its its the best I've ever felt. It feels like all the air has been sucked out of the balloon. Me being the balloon. I can just sort of be, I feel like I'm exhaling. I'm, you know, I'm 14 at this point. I'm at this stage. I'm quiet. I feel awkward in school a lot. I feel uncomfortable in social situations, especially, especially around girls. And now all of these uncomfortable feelings and thoughts seem to sort of evaporate. And I feel like for the, you know, for the rest of my drugging and drinking career, I chase that feeling, you know, of being fearless, being uninhibited. And the best analogy I can use, I think, is that I always felt like I had words and things to say that were sort of in my brain, you know, like jumbling around. And they sort of felt stuck because I felt like I didn't have the confidence to let them out. But when I took these pills, it allowed everything out. It opened the door. And that became the solution for a really long time. Drinking and pills worked really well for me for a really long time. But as I'll discuss in later episodes, it's a progressive disease. Two pills becomes three, three becomes five, becomes ten. It progresses into other substances. You know, it enters places like work. Now I'm blacking out. Now I'm I'm driving a boat. Anyway, this interview is amazing with Nicole. I will cut myself off for now. And again, this is my interview with Nicole L. If you had to pick one story from your life that just defined the way you drank, what you were like when you drank, what were the consequences when you drank, what would the story be? You know, every every one of my most impactful drinking stories had to do with my mother because my I was a good kid and when I started to drink, I became a nuisance. And I don't just mean a nuisance in the normal, I'm drunk and obnoxious kind of way. I mean a nuisance like, the mother who cared about me now was consistently worrying about me. And so that was a really, and I could probably cite several instances, but I'll, I'll mention two specifically. Okay. And one was more early in my drinking career when I actually started to lose control of my drinking. And not that it wasn't already out of control, but this was significant because I went out, I was in high school, 
and I went out drinking with some of my high school friends and I lost track of them and I blacked out and I woke up on somebody's front lawn. And clearly I had not gone home and I had a curfew, I was in high school. And so the immediate things that started running through my head were how did I get here and then what am I gonna tell my mother? And I think that was impactful because just it wasn't that far from where I lived. So, so first of all, waking up in kind of your own neighborhood on someone else's lawn, that just started the what my friend calls the shame spiral. But then in addition, the it also started that part of my mind triggered by my alcohol, alcoholism, which was, what's the story I'm going to tell? Yeah. And... And of course, I had the long march home. I, I still, it, it wasn't that far from home, but I, it was a long walk. And I got into a lot of trouble, clearly. But it wasn't the trouble got, that I got into that made it impactful. It was, it was the shame, and then it was the fact that I was going to have to be accountable to this woman. And but at the same time, I mean, you're in high school. Yeah. So this is what high school kids do. It's what I did. Yeah. So isn't there just like, hey, mom, and like, mom doesn't get it. This is what happens in high school. Hmm, that's a good question. I, I think yes and no. I think it was not just high school drinking, and, I, and I'm going to tell you that intuitively, that the way I would answer your question is I intuitively know that wasn't just high school drinking. Right. I think there was something... So you thought you drank differently than your friends? Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Where did you see that? Like I in what form? I saw that when I started to drink, they would get concerned. I saw it in their eyes. I saw it in their body language. I saw the way my friends and my sister, once we started drinking and they were feeling free and easy, they started to get concerned about me. I was almost like a damper on the party mm. because they now had to snap out of their good time and babysit me. Right. And that happened almost from the first time I started drinking. And this incident I'm talking about was only probably maybe two years into my drinking in high school because I was probably about 16, 17 maybe, yeah. and I had my first drink at 14. So so there was that. And, and so, no, I knew I was different. I knew it was different. I knew I liked it more. I knew I got more out of it. I knew the way I did it was different than other people who seemed to bounce back and not have as many negative repercussions. And I knew that the way I drank just made me feel icky from the get-go. When and, you, then, okay, well, uh, icky surprised me. I didn't think you were gonna use that <laughs> word just because like for me, those first few drunks are not icky at all. Like they're right. amazing. Right. So like, what do you mean? Like what, if I asked you like, what did you like about drinking so much? Why'd you do it to so much excess mm. at that age? Like, what would you say? Be Especially if it felt icky. Right, right. Well, I think when I say icky, icky more pertains to the uh, way I felt the next day. Okay. I think I kept drinking, and from my earliest, including my first experience drinking, what I got out of it was exactly what you read about, you know, the conviviality, the belonging, the sense of excitement, I'm now popular, I'm not self-conscious. I mean, I had my first drink, I was a pubescent teenager. I was fat, I had braces, and I had pimples. Mm. I wasn't popular, I didn't do athletics, I wasn't a cheerleader, I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, I studied, I read books, and my sister was my best friend. So it made me come out of myself. It made me feel good about, better about myself. It made me more gregarious. Yes, there was a time when I wasn't that extroverted, believe it or not. And uh, it worked in that respect. It got me out of uh, myself and into a feeling of comfort that I don't think I had experienced before in my life. Did, do, uh, you, know, you mentioned you have a sister. Mm -hmm. Did she drink? She drinks. Normal? I don't think she... 
Yeah, probably. It's hard to say. And what know, about she likes parents? to throw it back. My father's an alcoholic, and my father w- quit drinking in the late 80s without AA and then joined Alcoholics Anonymous in late, uh, mid to late 90s. So and he, he died went two 10 years, years ago. Dry. Yes, yes. And then he joined the program. Yes, he did. What, after, what happened after 10 years to get him to come in? According to him, he was ready to jump off a bridge. <laughs> he had been divorced, he was living alone down south. Uh, a lot of people in our family were already in the program or in Al-Anon. Yeah. And so I'm sure on some level he had watched that progression of people getting sober. I mean, all across my family, cousins, sisters, brothers. Um, my mother is not an alcoholic drinker. And she's one of those people who, oh, I kind of felt a little bit sick or lightheaded, yeah, you know, and so that's about it. Yeah. So, and, um, and my brother was a heavy pot smoker. He was the oldest, and he was hit by a train in Brooklyn in 1996 with like a blood alcohol content of like 0.38. Oh, so he he liked to drink. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's not funny, but it's uh yeah we 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 the people in my family we like drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. So. If you had to think about like when it crossed over to where it was a place that wasn't good or that felt quote alcoholic mm-hmm. um or did you did it feel that way like right off the start uh, it fe- it felt different as i mentioned before yeah. right off the start uh, there was trouble in uh, attached to my drinking right off this right from the bat it, like what it, like I didn't go home when I was supposed to go home. My mother had to send my brother to find me or get me. My friends or my sister would babysit me. My mother would be worried about me. Um, even though those incidents were more few and far between as far as the calendar, but they were still there. So because they were they were they were they they were separated by a, a significant amount of time, it didn't seem as serious. Right. And I and I knew I crossed the line. What happened was I was young, graduating high school. And I got a really good opportunity to go to a really good school in the South. I got a full scholarship. And I went down there, and they were just frats and parties and beer kegs and cocaine and weed and acid. And and there was everything. And some, like, hot guys. And that's just a really interesting combination for a woman like me. And it just very quickly spiraled into waking up naked, wetting my bed, being the... And, and on more than a few instances, I was kind of the middle of the dining hall brunt of, you know, um, the fraternity pledges, sing-songing kind of things that happen in college, you right. know? So, so that was really, the demoralization really took hold in me as a result of going to school. And I didn't, I w- didn't succeed at that school. I started getting into trouble. I had to see a, uh, a shrink. Uh, the administration caught wind of my drinking because I was very drunk a lot in my dorm. My friends were concerned. And I was not allowed to go back to school without seeing a professional. And so when I went home for the summer, I saw a professional and um, I ended up by the end of the summer in a kind of rehab, but more of a psychiatric institution, simply because the psychiatrist told my mother that if we confronted my alcohol problem, I, it wouldn't stick and I wouldn't go, but that I needed help. So I went into uh, like a psych ward for a week. Okay. And that's where I was when I was would have gone back to school. So you had a pretty short stint at that point, a yeah. short stint of drinking to yeah. then end up in the psych ward, Yeah, even if it was just for a week. Yes. And so kind of walk me through like what what happened from there to like your first moment in an AA room? Like what, what was sort of the, the time lapse and like mm-hmm. what was the path? 
Well, at that point, I started to live and work in New York and literally burned through living with everyone in my family who all kicked me out. And then what happened was when I lived with my dad, he was not drinking and his wife was in Al-Anon and he made me go to an AA meeting because I disappeared for Even though he wasn't going himself? No, no. No, my father's a neighborhood guy from Queens. Half his friends growing up were in AA. Okay. <laughs> so, so basically, um, he made me go to a meeting, and I I remember the room. I remember the room. I remember the face of the girl I met, who was very nice. I remember the speaker. It, it just didn't. It didn't resonate. I didn't like it. I didn't want to belong. What didn't resonate though? Like you the didn't think was you were. Ba- it wasn't bad enough, or everything was was was. It just wasn't me. I didn't identify. I didn't feel that I had their problems. Maybe it was some vestiges of I could still control it. I didn't want to be sober. Right. I, I knew. It, and whether, you were in like your mid-20s at this point? I was 20 okay. years old. I was 20 years old. And what they were saying was, was it seemed nice. They're very nice people. But it was like, these are old people who hang around and drink a lot of coffee and smoke a lot of cigarettes. They're very nice. But I remember the speaker talking about taking the bottle and like breaking the neck off of it in order to consume it. Like she couldn't even wait to undo the cap. That seemed weird to right. me. I couldn't. And also like oddly extreme. Like very, I went to, yes. one of my first meetings I ever went to, there was a young woman who talked about how she went uh, on a trip to Vermont and had uh, like maple syrup with rum in it. Right. And that led to her relapse. Right. And I was like, oh my God, like that seems like really like, ex- that's a lot. And so I, at this point I'm like, I don't think, I mean, she's really got a problem if right. maple syrup did it for her, but like, right. I don't think I belong here either. <laughs> maple syrup wasn't my problem either. <laughs> right, right. She I was like, she's really sensitive. So, yes. Um, okay, so you- So I was the, 20, that was my first meeting. Didn't he made take. me go, didn't take. Didn't so how wanna. much longer did you stay out there Three for? Years. Three more years. Right. And I moved to California, which somewhat controlled my drinking because I ended up with one guy that I lived with. Bars, my big thing with my drinking was I lost a lot of jobs because I'd stay in bars till they closed at like four and I couldn't get up for work. People talk about this idea of a geographic meeting, like if I switch my location, things will get better for me. Do you think that's what led to the California move? For him, interestingly, my geographic was from another guy to him. It was more like I didn't want to move to save my drinking. I I just found him to save my drinking. He wanted to move. Mm. So it was right after the Loma Prieta Prieta earthquake in 89. And he was a bricklayer and he wanted to go there because construction was booming. Right. And he was actually losing jobs here because of his drinking. And so he wanted to move. We had a very chaotic, tumultuous relationship that probably looked something like him threatening me if I didn't go to California. So I was like, okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's how I made decisions, right? Oh, sounds good. You're threatening me. And if you go and I'm stuck here, what's going to happen to me? Sure. So I went. And then California kind of controlled my drinking. Did you because- also think, not to interrupt you, but like, did you also think, I've been in relationships when I was active that mm-hmm. like, I was like, well, if I'm in this relationship, it'll keep me from drinking and drugging more. Yes, to some extent, because he took care of me. Right. It's funny. I realized several years sober, I look back, and my mother said to me when I was single, do you, do you, do you ever feel like you've ever depended on a man? And I'm like, I depended on Danny. Mm. He was a lot older than me. I was about 20. He was about 40. He was Irish from Ireland. He had a really strong, like, he just took care of all of it. He took care of the, the, the money. He took care of the drinking. He took care of everything for me because I couldn't take care of myself. And so... You know, I, I, um, the geographic for me was really just I was going to follow him because he was the one who was going to probably protect me from myself. Yeah. You know, and I really wasn't ready to get, to confront my drinking. And interestingly, we're both sober. Oh, really? <laughs> Long time. Yeah. You still stay in touch? Yeah. That's except great. he's he has Alzheimer's, so it's a little bit hard to 
communicate. Yeah. I yeah. think I thought if I'm with this person, like I'll go out less, I won't go to bars as much, I'll right. stay home. But then the truth was I was just getting drunk at home and yes. I was just, you know, using at home. Yes. Nothing changed. Or I drink out, out, out with him. Right. On his tab. Right. <laughs> Works for me. Okay, so you're in California. Yes. And then three years. Three years. We broke up. I lived there, supported myself for a while. I ended up meeting somebody else, moving to the East Bay area. And what happened with that was we were living and had that more quaint, quiet, drinking tequila and smoking bong loads at home type of life. Mm. But he would get annoyed at me when I'd have a behavior change drinking. And I was trying to keep a job and I was trying to go back to school. And then for me, when I drink, I become somebody else, which usually means that I, if I was living in this neighborhood and I was drinking at home, I'd end up wanting to go out and finding a party. And I would find a bar, I'd probably find someone to sleep with. I just go out and I find the world. So that started to happen living with him. Which so you were like me, the, you were like the fun drunk. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah, I was yeah, like yeah. the obnoxious mean drunk. Oh no, no, no. Well, I'm both. Um, I'm really slutty. <laughs> I'm fun. I'm also a little bit. Uh, I can get angry. I'm a highly charged drunk. I would more say. Okay. So in other words, if I'm sad, I might get really angry and punch somebody. If I'm frisky, I might get really flirtatious and sleep with somebody. I'm not. I'm not even clearly conscious of this because I'm in a blackout. Yeah. But it seems that whatever happens to me in a blackout probably results from whatever core feelings I'm having in that moment or on that day. So then what happened was I, I went out and I actually went out with some friends and I cheated on him and then I started an affair with somebody else. And work was getting a little bit weird. I had missed time and um, our relationship was just getting a little bit not so good. And then one night I went out and I didn't go home. And I again, the story, back to the story. Because for me, it's like I'm not a liar. And every time I drank, there was just like too much work around. That was my bottom, really. There was too much work for me to figure out the proper story to get myself out of something I knew there was no way out of. And so the next day when I went back and tried to tell a story, I was just, I, re I had this clear realization. He gave me the dirty look, you know, the yeah, you're, you're drunk. Dirty I know look. what you're up to. Yeah. And I was kind of like, my, I guess my basic solution, it was around September or October, was that I need to go to AA and um, or do something about my drinking, at least to get the heat off until he forgives me, doesn't kick me out. You know, right. I, that it's like, sort look, of I'm thing. doing something mm -hmm. to save us or to save mm -hmm. me. Exactly. Mm. Right. That was the primary motivation. So I just started going to meetings in this little fellowship in California. And this time, it like you said, the first time you're like, I don't belong here. This right. doesn't feel right. Second time feels right. Yeah. And I think what was the difference? I would probably say that I was more receptive. I The bottom was stronger. I had more to lose. I, when people talk about bottoms in yeah. sobriety, I feel like uh, people who aren't in the program, they... I notice this happens a lot on like on a date, right? Mm -hmm. On a first date or whenever like you unveil the big news that you right. that you don't drink. Right. And the first question is usually what happened? Like what right. was your bottom? And they expect you to say like I went through a car windshield right. or something like really uh, but it's usually not. It's usually <laughs> something like much more subtle than that. Is that what you notice too? Yes. Yes. Bottoms can be physical, and I believe they can be a result of somebody abandoning you, getting arrested, having a near-death experience, or some other type of catastrophic accident. For me, it wasn't like that. I had been through enough you know, hit or misses with accidental type things or other things that were potentially dangerous to my physical person. This was a demoralization, right? Which is what a lot of bottoms are. It was a moment in time where a window opened of almost like self-disgust. The bottom was more, I'm not the person that I need to be. And it, there was a clear, bright light connection between that feeling and the alcohol. And I think yeah. that's really, if I was to say how a bottom is more spiritual than anything else, it was like, 
oh, I'm feeling this horrible, icky, bleh, but this not clearly not very pleasant and demoralizing feeling. And I could definitely, whether it was because of what happened around my drinking on that day or in that moment, or whether or not I could clearly see in all my history and all the different drinking experiences, how they all fed that moment. And I could clearly almost see this cause and effect relationship between that feeling and the way that I drank. So I noticed, I, I had that feeling. Mm-hmm. And I knew that like for me in which, it, you know, I thought my core problem was pills and maybe mm-hmm. if I can just wrap my arms around that, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so for years I would, I identified that as the problem. This is the, this is the cause, I wanna stop so I'm gonna to try to stop. And then I would inevitably use again. So it was like this back and forth and back mm-hmm. and forth for like five years. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you didn't go through that. It seems like you like you hit this so-called, you know, pain threshold mm-hmm. and that was enough. Well, yeah, it's and it's not like I had completely admitted or conceded to my alcoholism. I just was committed to going to AA for a little while. And the one thing that got through was this idea that uh, I remember somebody saying, go into meetings and talk about how you feel, mm. go to 90 meetings in 90 days, and you know, just keep an open mind. That's it. And I was willing to do that. And I think that what I heard that really resonated with me was uh, honesty, honesty about drinking, honesty about a lot of things. And even if I felt like people were a little crazy, there was something comforting in that. There's still something comforting in that. Uh, it's a place where I think whether I like what somebody's saying or I agree with it or I don't, I feel like people are being as honest as they're possibly capable of being. And I find that enlightening and spiritual. I very, feel like a lot of the time, I mm-hmm. thank God for an AA room because yeah. there's no other place like it where you can air things out in quite totally. that same way. No. And especially when I, I notice like, I didn't grow up around men who were acting like that or talking like that. So like mm-hmm. I was shocked mm-hmm. when I would come in and a man was crying or mm-hmm. a man was talking about his feelings. I was, mm-hmm. I was like, I was stunned. Mm-hmm. So you found a sponsor. Yeah, that was powerful. The connection was powerful. I also had a failing relationship that I was I was a little unsure of, so I didn't want to be home. So by yeah. default, I was in, this was a clubhouse rather than a church basement. Okay. So it was open all day. So I could actually stay there and hang around these people all day and eat with them and hang out and go to the movies. And I learned how to do things without drinking, which was also crucial. You know, I'm a big believer that no no aspect of AA is unique. There is the book and there's also the fellowship and, they, and there's also the higher power and there's also service and there's practicing principles and all that stuff. And each has its own weight in time and in its own proper uh, part of the whole. So uh, yes, I did look for a sponsor. Yes, I was told to get a sponsor. I found friends, as many people do. That was the big thing. First of all, let me find people to connect with that I can talk to. Um, A sponsor was a little bit more difficult for me because I didn't look up to women. Why? uh, that's funny because I have a very good, my mother's my best friend. I don't have a problem. I didn't even have a problem then with women. I had women friends. Um, this is going to completely lack humility, but I'm highly intelligent. And there's a lot of aspects of the way that I move through the world that are just, um, I have a lot of characteristics that, that tend towards what, the, what I feel like the world views as more masculine characteristics. My, my communication is very assertive. Mm. Uh, I'm big, I'm strong, I'm athletic. And so I think I had probably more insecurities around my femininity. And so when I saw women and tried to relate to them, there was a gap between this kind of more assertive, strong persona I had and connecting with my femininity, which I probably viewed as weakness. Do you think you, just to, to speak to that, like, do you think that you sort of quote, I'm using quotes, but mm-hmm. drank like a man more than drank oh, like totally. a woman? Oh, totally. 
totally drank like a guy. Oh my God. I remember being like 16 years old and my old grandfather would give me money to take the bus home yeah. and I'd go into what I call a dirty old man bar and like sit and drink with those dudes. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. loved it as you can clearly see I'm very alive at that thought <laughs> and and it just was really it was my world it was like the dirty old man bar where, where I kind of think really even that I drank like a man I just liked being around men mm. I just I just like masculine energy I still like it I just I just I'm like I just like it but I love my women friends I mean I think that what's the what, what would you say is the dynamic difference between a mixed meeting and a single gender meeting I think I think in a in a women's meeting, uh, women will self reveal. I think women generally, and it's a strength of the gender in my in my experience, is that w we often not always, but often can really speak to uh, feelings in, at a very deep and um, evolved level. Um, sometimes that goes too far for me because mm -hmm. I'm action and solution oriented, and I believe there's a process to somebody's feelings. But at some point in time. When someone is too immersed in them and gets too deep into them, it's almost like uh, recovery prohibitive, if that makes yeah, any kind of it sense, does. right? Yeah. And I don't know, know that that's exclusively feminine, but I, I have found, like I have a sponsor who goes to a women's meeting. It's a very powerful meeting. I've been there. I would just not choose it as my home group because it does, you know, uh, it does that a little bit too much and I don't end up believing. For me, everything is visceral. I'm not really like... Even though I'm speaking to mental images and ideas in my head, when I answer questions, it's kind of like the feeling of rooms, people, places happens in my body first. So what happens for me, it's a very simple energetic exchange more often than not. I mean, the, again, this women's meeting I went to in early sobriety was extremely powerful because mm -hmm. I needed to find myself as a woman and I needed to digest and interpret my, for lack of a better word, you know, inappropriate sexual experiences while I was drunk. Okay. And that was powerful and I needed women to help me do that. And I still need women to help me understand myself as a woman. When I go to a women's meeting, energetically what I feel is uh, a little bit more of an immersion sometimes into the depth of the problem than is comfortable and, and, and uh, rejuvenating that you know what I mean it's just not it, it doesn't bring me up as much as I would like to okay like you know that feeling when you leave a meeting you're like wow that was great I yes. feel in the right place and I feel centered and I feel good I, I don't feel that when people dive too heavily into feelings in a way that you just kind of feel the energy sort of being drained away from the primary purpose yeah right? I've heard men talk about it and, I, and I've shared this this feeling also of when you're in a mixed meeting versus a you know a, just a men's meeting um, like I notice, my shares can can change mm -hmm. if there's, let's say, a, a cute woman in the room that I find, that I'm into. Like everything sort of changes. I become. Um, I heard someone in a meeting say the other day, they're like, if I share early in a meeting, then I spend the rest of the meeting thinking about how good my share right, was. Right. <laughs> or in my case, if if I don't share first, then I'm thinking the whole meeting about what I'm going to say. Right. You know, trying to impress this this woman in the yes. meeting. So that's why it, when men's meeting is kind of like a relief. It's like yes. I don't have to even think about that stuff. Yes. I don't think like that because generally speaking, I, I think for me, uh, uh, being myself is generally what I've learned impresses people. Yeah. So it's it's taken me away from the, I have to say something a certain way to impress him or her or women or men. Like generally, like when I let it just what my friend calls riff, Yeah. it's, it's bonus. Whether it's men or women, it doesn't matter. It's like that's the real attractive factor about the permission that Alcoholics Anonymous gave me to be myself. Yep. So I hear what you're saying, though. I understand completely. Um, okay. What would you say was the toughest part about early sobriety for you? You know, uh, it, I pause because it's, 
I have this perspective now of like when things are tough, it's like the greatest gift. And so it makes me emotional. That question makes me emotional because the things that I look back that were so difficult, I almost like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like my my body like starts to heat up and I feel incredibly grateful. Like I picked the wrong guy. I found the perfect guy for me who was, it was a mess. So my early sobriety wasn't as tough because it was early sobriety. It was tough because I made it that way. It was, I didn't know how to make good choices for myself. And I picked a guy who uh, also had his own issues, right? I mean, you picked a guy in the rooms. Oh, totally, of okay. course, yeah. And uh, we were both getting sober, and he uh, had more of a drug problem, and he also had more of a sex addiction problem. And it was just uh, my involvement with him just caused me a lot of pain, and caused me pain with other people in the fellowship. You know, he did a lot of things publicly and within the fellowship, and. And um, he went out a lot. So it was like every 60, 90 days, it was like he was disappearing and I was wondering if he was dead. And so- Did you ever, were you ever to, you know, tempted to relapse with him? Oh no, actually, matter of fact, no. As a matter of fact, what's really funny about that is every time I saw him come back, I'm not kidding that, I, I mean, I kid you not that I think when I die, I'll remember that face. And it almost made me more committed to staying sober. The face of him using? Oh yeah, he was a beautiful man. And he'd come back after using. And he'd come back with that deer in headlights look of yeah. just total stark shame, nothing to say, knew he'd screwed everything up. I mean, his ex-wife would call me, his kids would be calling me. And just that look, and he was an incredibly good looking man who had actually had some disfigurement. So he had one side of his face that had like no eyelashes. Okay. So I'd call it his naked side. And that would always be this just deer in headlights, big blue eye looking at me. Yeah. And it was quite powerful. It was quite powerful. And because you're like, I don't want to go back there. Yeah. Just I could just feel everything about how how hard that was, how there was just nothing to say. And he, there wasn't anything he was going to say that was going to make me feel better or make me unhurt or unangry. And so that made my life tough. And yet it made my, it, it really almost cemented my sobriety. I felt the same way when my brother died and I found out that he was very drunk. I was like, hmm, okay. That's just a real good reminder. And and it sounds almost weird to say that. Like it's, when somebody dies, it's a good reminder of why I stay sober. But it is, right? Because yeah. people die. And 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 I could have died more than a few times. And so my, my, my sobriety, but the first thing when you asked me that was what was the, the toughest thing about getting sober, is I, I just look back and I just think I was so full of fear. I was so afraid of everything. I was afraid of losing my guy. That relationship ended within 90 days. I was afraid mm -hmm. of never getting married. I found the worst guy for me. You know, I was afraid of never being able to keep a job. The job I was so afraid of losing, I left to go back to school. It's just such a tumultuous time, but but looking back, it's such a it's such a good time because it's just like you're shredding these layers of things that that I felt like I was shredding layers of things that I thought mattered, but it was all a haze because what mattered really was my drinking. And when I put the drinking aside, what really mattered mattered came to matter, right? Yeah. And I and it was like an unraveling, and that was scary. Was there for me? There was an initial like void, a big void of, and there was like I was just. I, I'll put it this way. I was really bored mm -hmm. in the beginning because I just like didn't know what to do with myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what like what do three guys do on a Saturday night that doesn't involve alcohol? Right. Like, what the hell are you doing? Right. And the truth is, is that we in the, in the beginning was I'd go to dinner and come home and go to sleep. You know, like that's what I had to do in the beginning just to sort of a get through the cravings, get through get through the boredom because mm -hmm. I knew drinking and drugging wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you. Um, 
You're, I've heard the perspective on dating from men. I wanted to hear it from a woman, mm-hmm. dating and sobriety. Ha! I love this, this is my favorite topic. Mm. So I have this funny theory, right? I have two things that I used to joke around about, and because I've sponsored just, you know, of course, you know, it's like, what is it my, my old sponsor used to say that was, uh, the sponsor doesn't fall far from the tree, right? Mm. So I've sponsored plenty of women who have my same kind of same. issues, intimacy avoidance, picking the wrong person. Uh, it's not uncommon, clearly. But I always used to say that um, I was going to write a book one day and it was going to be called um, The Hottest Guy in the Room is, uh, it has less than 30 days because when you walk <laughs> into a meeting and you sit down and you go, whoa, who's that? It's always the person that raises their hand and they go, I have three days back. Right. So it's like they're not only um, a newcomer, but they're relapsing. Right. Damaged, so, right. They're, damaged they're, goods. Well, well, yeah. It's just that they're like uh, clearly not the person that would be the most, the best partner, right? That may be the most attractive. Um, but then the other thing that I thought has always been funny because now I'm 51. I've been sober uh, my whole adult life potentially, and I've never been married. So I've done enough dating apps before the internet, before apps existed. You know, I was single. I was engaged once. I dated in AA. I dated out of AA. My theory is this. I always say that. Um, what happens in AA is you think about it, right? Like we sit around and we talk a lot about a lot of deep, dark stuff. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to turn around and ask a woman out in a meeting, you would go out with her to find out her last name, what she does for a living, what, where she grew up, how many siblings she has, you know, where her parents are from, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if you go out in the world, you date somebody and you find out that stuff on a first date and later you find out about them blacking out or whatever, you yes. know, you find out their deep, dark stuff. So I almost kind of feel by the very nature of the way that we collectively interact, there is almost kind of like a, a sort of a backwardsness to well, that's attempt, why attempted intimacy. Yes. Right. And also that's why every one of my AA relationships has been shot out of a cannon. Right. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Right? Like you yeah. were just off to the races. You're qualifying yeah. to each other on your first date. Oh, totally. And, and you're sleeping so with connected. each other way too soon. And right. yes, you feel right. so connected to someone so fast. You're being totally. so vulnerable. Right. And then, you know, it doesn't work out for a myriad of reasons. But at the same time, and I just had this conversation with somebody yesterday because we're talking about someone going in and out of a relationship. What should she do? This sponsor loves to ask me what I think about this as if I'm supposed to have a judgment or an opinion. Okay. And my answer for almost everything nowadays is it depends. It depends on the person themselves, what their issues are, who they're dating. I mean, you know, romance is like the big book talks about. It's like, you know, we try to stay out of this. We don't want to be the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. Mm-hmm. I'm not the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. I got enough of my own problems. But I think with dating, the thing is, is I had to be told because I didn't have any boundaries. I mean, I didn't make decisions to have sex. I went out to a bar with my friends and I woke up naked. Mm. And then I'd kind of touch myself to actually sometimes, and this is pretty revealing, but it's the truth. I'd have to kind of like touch myself and be like, did somebody have sex with me? Right. And not necessarily always knowing the answer, right? And so, uh, of course, after years of doing that, you know, it wears you down. It wears down one's self-esteem. But at the same time, when I got sober, I was surrounded by women who were like, help me understand that, help me to heal from that, help me to talk about that, help me to help other women because of that experience. And I had women who helped me also put some structure on that. Like, listen, Nicole, if you want to go out on a date with somebody, go out with them like three times before you kiss them. 
Yeah. It doesn't, it's not a rule, but the truth is, is if you just give somebody time and you talk to them like human being to human being instead of like, mm-mm to mm-mm, you know, I'm pointing at our, wa- our waists right now. <laughs> but, you know, you have a different kind of connection. You're able to see if there's a real cerebral, intellectual, and emotional connection. Watch somebody. You know, if you're going to date somebody, find out if he has a service commitment and he has a sponsor, you know. Find out, like, listen to him and, and you know, find out about his life and yeah. do, do more listening than talking. You'll be able to tell if someone is emotionally mature enough or really looking for a relationship. And yet, with all that being said, I love delusional romance. Sure. Oh, Same. my God. I'll, I'll lie to myself about anything to get into bed. And it's just <laughs> it's just kind of a joke, but it's true. But not now. Anyway, I'm engaged to a great guy. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, there will be something that's said in a meeting that like just really hits me, right? It'll like really – and, it, and it, it will sink in and stay there you know, forever at this point. Um, I remember, and this is, AA's got a lot of corny expressions, but in the beginning, I was probably like my third meeting, like I'm withdrawing from opiates, like I'm in the mm-hmm. corner, I'm, I have a sweatshirt on in July, I'm freezing. <laughs> and this guy talks about his, uh, you know, his drug addiction and he talks about, you know, not having 90 days and he had like 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And he said, somebody said to him, uh, if you get out of the lion's den, you don't go back for your hat. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I had like 60 days, which was like 57 days more than I had ever had in like the last 10 years. And so I had cravings all the time. I'm living, as I say, like minute to minute. Forget one day at a time. I'm mm-hmm. like one minute at a time. And so that I would always remember that lion's den, don't go back. Don't go back. Like it's not worth it. And there's other expressions that throughout my sobriety I've heard. Mm-hmm. But what are the ones that have really like hit you? I'll tell you one that is the most powerful thing I've ever heard, and it wasn't said per se. It may have been said in a meeting, but it was said by my first sponsor. And she said, go to meetings and talk about how you feel. Show up and be honest, and the rest is God's will. So what that means is because, I don't know if you've had this feeling yet, but a lot of people have that uh, meeting. What happens is, 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 is as time accrues, there's this sense that like you shouldn't be having those problems or mm. you shouldn't still be thinking like that or you shouldn't be having those cravings or you know if you've done the steps right or you're praying right or yada 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 that you wouldn't in fact be feeling that way so a lot of people as time goes on it becomes it and it was difficult for me I think I had about 17 years and I was going through something that was really challenging and I remember going to meetings and being like I can't talk about this this is like people are going to be right. like what's wrong with you that you're talking like that because I was I was going through a lot of stuff and it was really I was questioning my relationship with my higher power and I felt like if I opened my mouth in a meeting I was just gonna start bawling and never stop and that thing that she said was is literally like my mantra like I will never stop going to meetings and talking about how I feel because it's the one like whenever I open my mouth and people say like oh don't you get over that I don't think there's ever a point that I open my mouth in a meeting that right before I raise my hand my heart doesn't go boom 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 boom, because I'm about to reveal myself Ugh. You know, and there's always that, whether it's a social instinct or, or just plain old fear, that part where I just sit back and be like, do I really want to say that? Yeah. And I do. Yep. I really want to say that. Because especially when I'm really raw and honest, there's always someone that comes up to me and says, thank you so much. Thank you. And it's not when I say that, thank you so much. It's not like, oh, you're so great. It's literally like, thanks. That was just what I needed to hear. And I know what they mean. Because when somebody else talks like that, like a guy today talk like that. You know, all the success is happening to him. And he's like, and I feel really unsafe. I went up to him and I was like, congratulations for your success. And I know exactly what you mean. Mm. It's almost harder to take good things happening on some level. So really, that was the biggest thing, you know. And then, and and it's really funny. I'll just say this aside. I remember being in a meeting with a lot of people that had a lot of time. And I said,
said something and this guy who had a lot of time said something like, I really like what Nicole just said. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, I was all like buoyed up by the fact that this guy, because I, you know, there is sometimes this little feeling of a hierarchy, if you will. Of course newcomers. there feels like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I remember being like a new and having somebody say that they related and I felt validated. You know, so I don't know that like there's some, I'll probably leave here and think later, dang, I should have said that at the time, you know, was that thing I heard? Because, yeah, there's just a lot of great little pieces of things. Well, isn't it about to what you were saying? It's mm -hmm. like that, like, wow, like I feel useful. Mm -hmm. And like, that feels good. And I like for all those years when I was out there, like I wasn't really of much use to anyone. Nope. Except for me. No. Yeah. Okay. Two more and I'll get you out of here. Sure. Um, so you have a lot of time now. You have over 20 years. And if someone went to you and they said, you know, you've got, you've got over 20 years sober, you know, why do you still go to meetings? What mm -hmm. would you say? It's the best place to be. It's like, it's like, I know people who, I, you know, so if I don't drink, I'll have 28 years in about a week. And I, I kind of like everything, everything, every good aspect of my life, everything I've been able to show up for in some way, directly or indirectly, goes right back to me, me being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just that simple. And I know if I leave, I'm disconnecting myself almost from the electrical outlet that charges my life. Mm. And I know people I who leave AA. It, it, I know people who leave AA. I just had a sponsee decide she was, she's in this big thing. She's doing fitness and yoga. And she's just like, you know, she finds not AA. To go, not to go drink, but just no, to stop going to AA. Just to stop going to AA. Yeah. Doesn't feel like she's going to drink, but just isn't, isn't feeling the message, isn't doing it. And I also feel like that starts to happen when you stop doing service, when you stop attending meetings regularly, when your priorities outside AA become more important than AA. So I I continue to go because for me it keeps me centered and grounded and it just reminds me again and again of the simple thing that like I'm an alcoholic in recovery I don't feel like drinking I haven't felt like drinking in years it's not really a big thing I can be around alcohol but for me knowing I'm an alcoholic and relating to other alcoholics is it is just a foundational piece of my life and without that I feel like just I'd just be floundering and missing something that makes me successful yeah you know and the last one um, if you were gonna give one piece of advice to someone new to the program or someone that was thinking of getting sober, what would it be? Hmm. It's, 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 uh, I could say something as simple as keep coming back, but it's funny. I just said this earlier and I said, that's it what yesterday. I named this podcast, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, nice. Sweet. Sweet. Uh, there's this line, it, it's never quoted, but I love it. And, it's it's in the big book on like 162 or three or something towards the end of the, the basic text. And it says, you know, we know what you're thinking. I'm jittery and alone and um, I can't do this. But then it says, but, uh, but you can, because you've just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. And to duplicate all that we have accomplished is simply a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. And so what that means to me is that like the piece of advice is like, if you feel like you're alone, I get it. Like, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to feel alone many years sober. And the connection that I have to AA is the one thing that just, like, even if it sometimes feels like it takes forever, continues to unravel that loneliness. And it really is just a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. I'm only as sober as long as I am because I just have done the same bleeping thing again and again and again. My thanks again to Nicole L. I have a couple of quick announcements. If you want to reach out to me or the podcast in general to leave feedback, not only can you leave a review on iTunes, but you can now email me directly. Uh, it's keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Twitter. The handle is at KCBpodcast. 
and uh, you can you can reach us there too. Uh, again, I'm Mike S. This has been Keep Coming Back: Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery, and I'll see you next episode.